So I, I rode my bicycle for a year in 2010 uh, from uh, Canada to Colombia, and as part of that journey, I discovered that basically a billion people in the world didn't have uh, access to clean drinking water. So I began this journey and did some higher level education and been on a series of trips with my friends in the last six years. That's all led us to this, to this spot now where we've become very interested in a small scale uh, decentralized desalinization projects. It's really the future of water. Welcome everyone, and I'm stoked that you could be with us for today's Beach Talk. Now, I want to help you understand every word of God that's in God has so many amazing things to say to us every day. If we'll just uh, take the time to listen, so I'm really glad that you could be with us uh, for today's message. Uh, now, my objective is simple. It's for disciples to make disciples and for churches to plant churches. We want a grassroots movement of Jesus to go anywhere and everywhere that God wants it to. So Matthew 9 today, verses 1 and 2, says that Jesus got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, uh, son be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. Now, his own city. Now, this must mean Capernaum, as previously noted in Matthew 4. Now, they brought to him a paralytic who was lying on a bed. In the other Gospels, Mark 2 and, and uh, Luke 5 explain how the man was brought to Jesus because of the crowds. His friends lowered him down to Jesus uh, through the roof. Now, this will be another example of Jesus healing uh, the sick and the diseased, and the Messiah's role as a healer was clearly prophesied about in Isaiah. Now, then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. The waters will burst forth in the wilderness, and the streams in the desert. Thus, Jesus' miracles were a testimony, not only to the fact that he was sent by God, but that he was also the anticipated Messiah who was to come. So... However, as noted earlier, Jesus' miracles were not primarily calculated for the crowd effect. Instead, they were done to minister to the humble needs of humble people. This is completely lost today. Jesus didn't prefer uh, spectacular signs like calling down fire from heaven upon a Roman legion. Now, we also know that the presence of so much sickness among Israel was evidence of their unfaithfulness to the covenant and their low spiritual condition. God uh, gave them the opposite of what he promised in Exodus. If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of those diseases on you, which I have brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. Jesus was healing people and will continue to. Now when Jesus saw their faith, Jesus saw the faith of, uh, of his friends, not just the paralyzed man himself. It was evident that they had faith to bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus, and their faith was active enough to take apart a roof and lower a man down before Jesus. This is an incredible story. We can also assume that the paralyzed man himself had little faith. Now, Jesus noted the faith of his friends, not his. Therefore, Jesus wanted to encourage this man's faith uh, by his next words. He says, with swift, sure di diagnosis, Jesus sees in the man not faith, but deep depression, and uttering first a kind word, 
such as a physician might to address a patient. Cheer up, <laughs> F.A. Bruce. Now, son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. The faith of the paralyzed man's friends did something. They brought their friend to Jesus, yet they only thought of bringing him to Jesus for the healing of his body. They certainly didn't think that Jesus would also forgive his sins. But Jesus did both. Now, Jesus addressed the man's greater problem is as, as bad as it is to be paralyzed, it's infinitely worse to be bound and lost in our sin. Now, we need not interfere with the man that was paralyzed as a direct result of that sin. Some needed forgiving. This did not seem to be Jesus' point here in saying, your sins are forgiven you. Now, Matthew Poole wrote of this. He saw six reasons why Jesus dealt with the man's sin first. Um, and to sort of paraphrase his reasons, he says, first, because sin is uh, at the root of all of evil. Uh, two, to show that forgiveness is more important than bodily healing. That is true. To show that the most important thing Jesus came to do was deal with sin. Also true. To show that when a man's sins are forgiven, he becomes a son of God. It's a fruit of it. Now, to show that the response to faith is the forgiveness of sin. To begin an important conversation with the scribes and the Pharisees as he would begin to develop the rest of the gospel. Now verse three says, and at once some of the scribes said amongst themselves, this man blasphemes. And at once some of the scribes, now we notice that they objected immediately, yet privately saying it within themselves. Jesus will address what they said within themselves, showing that our thoughts and opinions are open to God instead of interest to him. Now, this man blasphemes. The scribes correctly understood that Jesus claimed to do something that only God can do, but they were incorrect in assuming that Jesus was not God himself and that Jesus blasphemed by considering himself God. <clears throat> now, here the teachers of the law in their whispered consultation expanded blasphemy to include Jesus's claims to do something that only God can do, D.A. Carson. They did not call him man. The word in italics is, is in our version. They did not know what to call him in their hearts. They meant, you know, this upstart, <laughs> this nobody, this strange being, that's what Charles Spurgeon said. Now, this is the first mention of opposition to Jesus, which will be a recurrent theme as we move forward. Now, verses 4 and 5 says, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? What is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or arise and walk. Now, uh, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, uh, this alone should have been enough to prove uh, that he was God, demonstrating that he could know the evil in their hearts, yet he would also offer a greater proof of his deity. Now, for wh what is easier to say? Both healing and forgiveness are impossible with man, yet only the promise of healing could be immediately proven. Basically, you can't see someone's sin being forgiven. You can only see that they're healed. Only God knows the heart. Now, this appears to have been founded on Psalms 103 when it says that he will forgive all your iniquities, heal all your diseases. Now, here he heals his body. Now, verses 6 through 8 say, But when you know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralyzed person, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now, when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, Jesus answered his own question 
before the relig before the religious leaders did. Since he could make good on his claim to heal the man, it gave proof of his claim to also have the authority to forgive sins. And he arose and departed to his house. The man was instantly healed, proving that Jesus did have the power of God to heal and to forgive. Now, he did not go into the temple with, with, the, with the sacraments, nor to the, nor to the theater with the man of the world. He went into his home. It was a relational healing. Jesus is always concerned about relationships. A man gives proof of his conversion from sin to God as he imitates a paralytic person who does not rise and stand upright, but neither continues groveling on the earth or falls back as soon as he's gotten up. When God cures us, he cures us completely. So. When the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God at the man's healing. The crowd properly gave God the glory for the miracle. Jesus obviously did not try to draw attention to himself in the manner in which the healing was done. <laughs> now, verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now, a man named Matthew. Now, Mark 2 says that this man was... Uh, from a man named Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Matthew 10.3 mentions that there was another disciple who was the son of Alphaeus, James, called uh, James the Less, to distinguish himself from James, the brother of John. So it seems that both this Matthew and his brother James were among the original 12 disciples. Now, a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, tax collectors were not only notorious sinners, they were also properly regarded as collaborators with the Romans against the Jewish people. Nobody liked the man who sat at the tax office because he was wrong on both fronts. Now, the Jewish people thought rightly of them as traitors because they worked for the Roman government and they had the force of the Roman soldiers behind them to make people pay taxes. They were the most visible Jewish collaborators with the Romans. Now, the Jewish people rightly considered them extortioners because they were allowed to keep whatever they overcollected. A tax collector bid among others the tax collecting contract. For example, many tax collectors might want to have a tax contract for the city of Capernaum. Now, the Romans awarded the contract to the highest bidder. The man collected taxes, paid the Romans what he promised, and the remaining amount. It was totally a corrupt process. And they did this any way that they could. It was pure profit for them. Now, he was at the time busy taking and stealing, basically, from the people that were part of the story. Now, when a Jew entered the custom service, he was regarded as an outcast from society. He was disqualified as a judge or a witness in a court session. He was excommunicated, actually, from the synagogue. And in the eyes of the, of the community, he was a disgraced family member giving you a little background there about who the tax collectors were and how they were treated. Nobody liked these people. So it's a big deal that Jesus is having uh, this interaction with this person. Now, faithful tax collectors or honest tax collectors did not exist. This is a very important background so that you can start to understand what is about to happen here in this conversation. And he said to him, follow me. Now understanding how almost everyone hated tax collectors, it's remarkable to see how Jesus loved and called this tax collector. 
It proved to be a well-placed love. Matthew responded to Jesus' invitation by leaving his tax collecting business and following Jesus and eventually writing the gospel that we're studying right now. Now, he left his tax collector's table but took from it one thing, his pen. <laughs> now, that's good. The one thing he had that he could took with him, he took his pen so that he could write the very story that we're talking about right now. Now, in one way, this was more of a sacrifice than some of the, than some of the other disciples made. Peter, James, and John could more easily go back to their fishing business, but it would be hard for Levi to go back to tax collecting. <clears throat> now, there's an archaeological evidence that fish taken from the Sea of Galilee were also taxed. So Jesus took as his disciple the tax man that may have taken money from Peter, James, and John. So there was a relational rub happening here as well. This might have made for some awkward introductions. <laughs> now verses 10 through 13, now it happened Jesus sat at the table in the house and that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of, the, of a physician, but those who are sick, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous people, but the sinners to repentance. Now, Many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him. The context suggests that this was a gathering of Matthew's friends and former business associates. <laughs> we might say that Jesus took advantage of Matthew's decision to also reach out to those he knew. It was a room full of people that nobody liked. <laughs> and his first step was to call Matthew to discipleship, the gathering uh, through him of a large number of these people to come into Jesus's teachings, begin to follow him as well. Now, it's worth noting here that many tax collectors and sinners uh, estimate was held in a private home, but maybe in a public hall, maybe in a bigger place. And there might have been possibly been upwards of many, many people at this gathering. So they say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The answer to this question was simple because Jesus is the friend of sinners, just like he's friends with us. God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. <laughs> sinners may include common people who don't share all the scruples of the Pharisees, <laughs> D.A. Carson. Now those who have uh, no need of a physician, but those who are sick, this was the principle that, the, that criticizing the Pharisees did not understand. The Pharisees were like doctors who wanted to avoid all contact with sick people. Of course, they wished that sick people would become healthy. They just didn't want to help them get healthy. They didn't want to risk getting infected themselves. Now, we're fortunate that God calls us and not just perfect people. I, for one, <laughs> am thankful for that. <laughs> Yet the proud who see no need for Jesus, those who are well, benefit nothing from Jesus. It's the sick who need a doctor. It's the unhealthy that need to become healthy. It's the lost people that need to become found. It's those with no hope who need to find their hope in Jesus. Jesus is trying to teach us his relationship with people in this story, that all are welcome to come, 
and all are welcome to be in a relationship with him. Now, God would rather have right hearts full of truth and mercy than sacrifice. Now, these words are more arresting when we remember that they were addressed to the teachers of men. The rebuke of Jesus showed that he did not, that they did not know God and that they didn't even understand the scriptures that they were trying to teach to other people. Now, this would be distasteful to those who thought they knew everything already. <laughs> be very offensive. Now, verse 14, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we see the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Now, why do we see the Pharisees fast often? Now, the ministry of John the Baptist was strict in its character and had an emphasis on humble repentance. Matthew 3, now John's disciples imitated this and showed their own humility in light of their sin and that of the people. Now, the Pharisees fast often. The Pharisees were known for their practice of fasting, often twice a week, but they didn't do it out of a spirit of humble repentance. They often fasted for other people to see them, to be popular, to gain more followers, to impress other people. None of the reasons that Jesus was trying to teach us to fast. Now, apparently the disciples of Jesus did not fast as either of these two groups did. Jesus will now explain why. Now, verses 15 through 17, Jesus said to them, Can't the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. And the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into wineskins and both are preserved. Now what's happening here? Now can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? It wasn't right for Jesus' disciples to imitate the Pharisees in their hypocritical shows, nor was it right for them to imitate John's disciples in their ministry of humble preparation because the disciples lived in the experience that John tried to prepare people for. But the days will come, there will come a day when fasting would be appropriate for Jesus' followers, but at the present time when Jesus was among them, it was not the end of the day. Now, an old Puritan commentator named John Trapp drew a couple points from this. He says that fasting uh, is not abolished by this and still has a duty for us that the times of heaviness are times of humiliation and that there are times when we still should fast and that we should continue doing that when it's appropriate. Now, it says the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. It was as if Jesus said, they're going to take me away and I, I'm going to threaten their system. It is the first slight hint of his coming rejection that is really going to speed up as we get into the story. Now, do, why do I not put new wine into old wineskins? This is an illustration that Jesus explained that he did not to come to repair or reform the old institutions of Judaism, but he had a new covenant altogether. The new covenant doesn't just improve the old one, it totally replaces it. But they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Jesus' reference to the wineskins was his announcement that the present institutions of Judaism could not and would not contain this new wine. 
he would need a new institution, the church, that would bring the Jew and the Gentile together into a completely new body, which we'll read about in Ephesians. Now, Jesus reminds us what is old and stagnant often cannot be renewed or reformed. God will look for a new way and new vessels to do his work until these vessels eventually make themselves unusable. This reminds us that the religious establishment of any age is not necessarily pleasing to Jesus. Sometimes it's in direct opposition to him and his heart and his work. Jesus came to introduce something new, not patch it up. This is what salvation is all about. In doing this, Jesus doesn't destroy the old, but he fulfills it. Just as an acorn is when it grows in, when it grows from an oak tree, there's a sense in which the acorn is gone, but its person, but its purpose is fulfilled in greatness. Now, this wraps up our time looking at the first part of Matthew chapter 9 today. There was so much in there. Now, I always like to end my uh, beach talks with the chance to pray. Maybe there's Maybe you need a fresh start with God. Maybe there's some things in your life you need to quit doing. Maybe there's some things in your life that you need God's help with. Wherever you're at today as you watch this, would you join me in praying together? Just say, God, would you give me a fresh start? Would you help me with my life? Would you fill me with hope as I try and follow you in Jesus' name? And as always, have a great day. Thank you for your time. We would love to partner with you. Uh, water is a global problem. It's going to take as many partners as we can to help solve this problem. We'd love for you to partner with us. If you could go to our website at www.oceanwater.com. That's O-C-N-W-T-R.com. We'd love that. Thanks so much.